0: We are in Matthew chapter 19. We'll be finishing up chapter 19. Another challenging text here. The title of the sermon is Wandering About Treasure. That is not a typo or a misspelling. Wandering about treasure. Matthew 19. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 30. I am reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. It begins in Matthew 19, 16, and says, Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these things I have kept, said the young man. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, Well, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be in it for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as many and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in your word that is before us this morning, for we know that it is absolute, undiluted, unadulterated truth. And we say together that we need truth. In our world, in the church, in our hearts, and our minds, reverberating in our ears, we need the truth of God. Thank you for the truth that is before us. We ask together that you would help us by the Holy Spirit, who is a teacher of all things, to comprehend the truth that is here, and to obey the truth that is here. We ask together with the help of the Holy Spirit that we be formed by this truth, not merely informed, that our lives would be shaped by your word for your glory and, Lord, for our good. So give us ears to hear and a heart to obey. And please, we ask together that you would help me teach and preach. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, another little bit of a doozy text as it was last week, if you were here. Jesus is saying some pretty interesting things. It is peculiar, pe- pe- Peculiar. it's a hard word to say in front of hundreds of people, that it is peculiar in the Scriptures that we find about 500 verses in the Bible that have to do with prayer. We find about 500 verses in the Bible that have to do with faith. But there are about 2,000 verses in the Bible that have to do with money and possessions. Indeed, if we look at the four Gospels carefully into a study of it, we'll find that one out of every 10 verses in the Gospels has something to say about money and or possessions. That's interesting. Why do you suppose that is? It's not that... Holy Scripture, the Bible, condemns wealth or wealth-getting. And what Jesus says here to the young man, though startling, is not normal. He never says that to anybody else. It's not that Holy Scripture condemns wealth or wealth-getting. In fact, there are many in the Bible that God blessed and used in various ways who were wealthy and tremendously so. In fact, there are those in Scripture whom the Bible says God explicitly made them wealthy. Abraham and others come to mind. So it's not that wealth or the accumulation of it is bad according to the Bible, which is good news because everybody in this room is wealthy. You got to remember, God is the God of the whole world. We're Americans and we're like West Coast, Coastlands, like Carpinteria, Montecito, Santa Barbara area, Americans, And by world standards, we are wealthy. By historical standards, we are wealthy. By world standards right now, we are wealthy. A couple billion people in the world live on less than a dollar a day. So by the standards that God would be thinking about, because he looks at the whole world, we need to know that every one of us in this room would be considered, in God's perspective, to be wealthy. Therefore, this text is not about someone else. I know what you were doing. You were doing what I was doing. You were thinking about the rich guy that you know, and you were saying, oh yeah, now you got it coming. <laughs> I know, I did the same thing. But it's not about someone else. It is about us. We are the wealthy of the world. Make no mistake about it. So then we must hear what Jesus says here when he says, Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why do you suppose that is? Scripture doesn't condemn wealth. But it does warn us about wealth. It warns us more explicitly about the danger of loving wealth. You'll remember what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where he said, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's one of the most oft misquoted verses in Scripture. Everyone always says money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So there's a warning in Scripture that wealth has a way of making us wander. Many, it says, who were craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Why do you think that is? Why do you think wealth has a proclivity to make us wander? And why did this man in the text wander away from Jesus so sad after he heard what Jesus said, having great wealth himself? From what I can tell about this man, he was everything that everybody wants to be. He was wealthy. We see that in the text. He was young, Matthew told us in verse 20, who Honestly, who doesn't want to be young? The older I get, the more I realize, yeah, that's a thing. You want to be young. (laughs) And Luke tells us in his account that he was a ruler or a leader of some sort. So he's often called by people that, I don't know, study the Bible, the rich young ruler. He was everything that we want to be. He was rich, he was young, and he was wealthy. He was living out 2,000 years ago in Israel, the American dream, rich, rich. Young and some sort of leader. He had power and status and authority. Everybody wants to be him, which means everybody wants to hate him. That's the way that that works. But he's hard to hate because it seems like he's really a great guy. He's very morally upstanding, we could tell from what he says. And he's even reverent and respectful. Mark tells us that when he asked this question, he got on his knees before Jesus. So he's rich and he's young and he's a ruler but he's humble and he's reverent and he's respectful and he's morally upright. I'm sure he was good looking too. <clears throat> and had a great beard. It was Israel. They had great beards. But what the text reveals to us is that even with all this going on the man still had deep spiritual longings and religious concerns. That's why he asks in verse 16 the question, Teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? He asks that question. That frames the whole thing. He's concerned about spiritual truths and about eternal life, life in eternity with God. And Jesus is actually pretty hard on this good-looking, nice fellow. Look what Jesus says to him in verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. So what's going on here? Why does Jesus say that? seems like a a strange response. This is not a denial of deity, as some might think. It's not Jesus saying, well, I'm not good. Only God is good. Therefore, I'm, I'm not God. That's not what's going on. He's not even talking about that. What Jesus is doing instantly to the man is he's challenging his perspective or his understanding of good. The man came and said, what good thing must I do? And Jesus says, why are you even talking about good? Only God is good. So he wants to immediately reframe for the man his understanding of good. He's resetting or right-sizing the standard. The man was not the standard, nor what man could do. This was about doing good things. But God himself is the standard of all that is good, Jesus is saying. So he's wanting the man to think a little bit about the quality of his question. So already Jesus has this rich, young, good-looking ruler, sort of his equilibrium's upset a little bit, like, whoa, I didn't expect that. Okay, I didn't mean so much by good. And then Jesus goes on to say, the end of verse 17, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Pause right there. Those are uh, some of the last half of the Ten Commandments. And then he throws in, love your neighbor as yourself. And the man says, all these things I have kept. What do I still lack? Now that kind of seems bold to us, I think. Right, all I, we're better trained than that. If Jesus said do these things, we probably want to say, "I'm doing all those things." What's interesting about it? Is Jesus doesn't challenge his assertion whatsoever. The young man just says, "All these things I have done." Jesus doesn't challenge it, though. Perhaps he could have, but maybe Jesus doesn't challenge the man's claim to have kept those commandments because he didn't need to. The man said, "What do I still lack?" something more going on here. He was economically successful, socially successful, morally successful, religiously successful, but he himself sensed that something was still missing. Even though he had checked off all the boxes religiously, morally, culturally, socially, economically, he himself said that something was still missing. And that is perhaps no surprise to us. We are well-versed in this God-shaped void sort of language that we talk about within evangelical Christianity. Maybe that's no surprise. He had checked off all the boxes in life, but something was still missing, he sensed. No, we're not surprised by that. I think ideologically, I think we often doubt that very thing. I think if we found ourselves in his rich, young, influential shoes we would doubt rather we would sense that something was really missing. And so Jesus is pushing on the man a little bit and he's gonna drill down with him a bit. He's gonna do to the man and with the man what God in his love will do to and with all of us at one time or another. He's gonna go deep now. Jesus is gonna put his finger on the the thing. He's gonna get to the heart of the matter. Jesus is going to challenge, confront, and expose the man's true source and center of joy and security. Jesus is going to confront it, challenge it, and expose it. But I want us to understand here the the space from which Jesus is working. Mark gives us a little bit of information that Matthew doesn't include, and I don't know why, but Mark includes it from... 1021, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack. That's really important for us to get what's going on in the text and what Jesus is trying to accomplish in him and us. It says there in the parallel account, Jesus looked at the man and he loved him. And from that place of loving the man, because he loved him, said, there's one thing that you lack. doesn't say that about anyone else in the gospel accounts. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And Jesus doesn't do this thing that he's doing to this man about his wealth to anybody else. Something profound is going on here. This is some real tough love that gets to the heart of the matter. And what Jesus is saying and requiring of the man is pure love and a true attempt to fulfill the man's deepest longings. And he had longings. He's the one who said, what do I still lack? He himself knew that there was something lacking. And so he said to him, one thing you lack, the way that Matthew gives it to us is Jesus says to him, if you want to be perfect, now don't misread that. Jesus is not saying, okay, well if you just add a couple of things and you will be perfect before God in your obedience. That's not what he's saying. The Greek verb there is teleois, or however you pronounce it. It comes from the noun telos, which means end or finish. The idea is that which has reached its aim. Jesus is saying to the man, if you want to get to that which you're aiming for, one thing you lack, one final thing to get to the deepest desire of who you are and what you have. All that you're hoping for and to be. And then he says to you that very hard thing, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So what Jesus does there very quickly and very simply is expose and confront this man's truest treasure. Go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. He exposes the man's truest treasure, his source of security and joy, and he offers him truer treasure. You see, you see the exchange he offers him? Get rid of this treasure and come follow me. He offers him a truer treasure and the invitation to follow him. And what we find happens in our lives, consonant with this text, is that our treasure is exposed, confronted, when we have to imagine, or maybe not imagine, maybe actually experience living without it. If there's something that we just can't imagine living without, if there's something that we're confronted to do without, if there's something whose absence would destroy us, that thing becomes exposed as our treasure, our deep, deep treasure. Jesus says to the man, I want you to imagine life without all your stuff. And he can't do it. He walks away from Jesus. Now, it's not that it's bad to value things or even value things deeply. Scriptures say that all things were made by God for us to enjoy. It's not bad to value things or to value them deeply. But what we know, because we're well-trained Christians, and what, what we know as part of the human race is that there's nothing else in this world that will actually ever fully and finally satisfy us. That's why the man said, what do I still lack? And Jesus said, one thing you lack. And if you want to be perfect, if you want to get to the place that you're really aiming for, surrender the thing that in your life is the greatest treasure. And because I love you, I will tell you to exchange it for the treasure of knowing me. But the man can't see it. He doesn't see the hope, the possibility, the beauty, the love, and the proposed exchange. He can't imagine life without his treasure, and so he misses true treasure. And one of the more sad verses in all of the Gospels, verse 22, he went away from Jesus sad because he had great wealth. In the moment of decision in the moment where God in his love was confronting, exposing his true treasure, the man said, I'm not willing to give that up. And he walked away from Jesus. Now this is the crux of the whole thing. In Jesus's list of commandments there, I already told you it's like the second half of the 10 commandments. And then he adds in, love your neighbor as yourself. In Jesus's list of commandments that he gave to the man there, you notice, I'm sure, a glaring omission. There's one that all of us, if we had to guess how Jesus would answer that question, which commands, we would have said, well, Jesus is going to say this one. Because every other time he's ever asked anything even close to that, this is exactly how he responds. He'll do it just a few chapters down the road in Matthew 22. Someone will ask, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Isn't it weird that Jesus didn't include that one in the list? But what we see Jesus doing with a man as he drills down, as he pushes him a little bit, as he goes deeper, is Jesus actually gets down to this very issue, but in a more probing way that didn't allow the man the opportunity or the moment or even the thought to claim success. If Jesus had listed this one in the commands, we could expect that the young man probably would have said, all these things I have done. He certainly knew about this one. And after all, it's a reflection of the first of the Ten Commandments. And the second and the third. But Jesus gets him to this place by taking him down this road where the man could never claim success and he showed the man that there was actually something radically wrong in here. That there was in the man's heart the sin of idolatry. Jesus drilled down in his love and he got to the root. And it's true... For humanity, we find that there is something radically wrong in all of us. There is this tendency in the human heart to make idols out of all sorts of things. Now, an idol is simply this. Don't think just of Old Testament pictures of Molech and Baal and Ashtoreth and all these graven images. And don't think about what you see when you go out to Thai food. An idol, in biblical purposes, is this. (laughs) It is anything that we esteem to be too important of a thing. Anything that we esteem to to be too important of a thing. It might be a bad thing that we value too much. It might be a good thing that we value too much. Something that has risen to a place of ungodly prominence in our hearts and our minds and so our lives and so the ways that we live, think, act, and feel. That's what this man's wealth was for him. Bible never says that the wealth was a bad thing, but what his heart was doing with the wealth was a detrimental thing. And wealth seems to have, of all the idols, this unique ability to blind us to the truth of that radical wrongness of overvaluing things other than God. That's why Jesus said what he said in verse 23. Truly, I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So the picture of a camel going through an eye of a needle is, of course, ridiculous. That means it it can't be done. Jesus is saying that explicitly about what wealth does in our hearts. And, and the way that that be, can become a distraction that blinds us from deeper needs and deeper truth. And we, the wealthy, we, the wealthy, we use it that way, don't we? I have a friend. <clears throat> he doesn't live in this area, so don't try to speculate who it is. He is radically used of God. He's one of my favorite people in the world, Incredibly used of God in so many ways, wonderful servant to the Lord. And he is so messed up. He spends more time in therapy than I spend surfing. He's just messed up. And he has spent years and hundreds of hours in therapy. And he told me recently, he said this, this is a true quote. He said, Britt. I think we were shopping together, and he said, Britt, you know, I have found that retail therapy is less expensive and more effective than normal therapy. <laughs> Someone over there has a good laugh. <laughs> now, why is that so? Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Maybe he was just being funny. Maybe he just wanted an excuse to buy something. But why is there even the possibility of saying that? Because wealth and the getting of wealth and the wandering around in wealth has a tremendous ability to distract from deeper things, from important things, from God things, from God's place. And we could do all sorts of things with wealth that give us the ability to drown out other competing concerns. And so that's why it said back when, in 1 Timothy 6, many desiring money, have wandered away from the truth of, of, of the faith and suffered all sorts of hard things. And there are other distractions, not just money, not just wealth. There are other lesser treasures. And what Jesus wants to do with us through this text and at different times in his life, because he loves us. Remember, he looked at the man and he loved him. What he will do sometimes for some of us is cause us to confront those things that mean too much. And so will ultimately shipwreck us in our faith. That's, that's why when you, when you read the Old Testament, God is always really mad when his people are messing around with idols. Because idols always destroy in one way or another. They blind, they enslave, and they destroy. That was true of those false idols back then that had demonic powers behind them, the scriptures say. And that's true of the things that we value too much in this lifetime. And so God will always try to expose in one way or another those things. And you know, sometimes those things are like, they're the things that we have to really stare down the barrel of and decide, is this a deal breaker for me or not? Because that was a deal breaker for the dude. He had real spiritual hunger. He was really going for it. He was on his knees before Jesus asking good questions. But when Jesus put his finger on the thing and got down to the heart of it and pulled out that one issue for him, that was a deal breaker. He said, That's too much. I'm walking away. Perhaps you've been at that place before. I've been at that place. I've, I've told you the story before, I think. But I, for those of you that don't know, I had a daughter who died of cancer a few years ago when she was eight years old, Daisy Love. And it was a three and a half year battle with cancer before she went to be with the Lord. And somewhere near the end, when things had taken a final turn for the worse and we knew that she was going to die, I was sitting in the hospital room with her and I was mad at God. I was mad at God. Everything about that situation seemed unjust and not right. And somehow... And my real thoughts and even efforts to walk away sad, somehow, by God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, not because of me in spite of me, I got to this place where, in a moment of prayer, I said to God through the tears in my eyes, "Jesus, if Daisy dies, this doesn't change anything between us. I am still yours." But there was a danger in that moment of that being the deal breaker for me. And we all have those things in our lives. It might be our kids. It might be our marriage. It might be our health. It might be our wealth. It might be our reputation. We've all got these things in our lives that have the possibility of becoming deal breakers where if this goes awry or if this goes away, I'm walking away from Jesus sad. And the text is a warning, is a warning for us to identify those things, to let God identify those things, to let Jesus and his love confront, expose, and combat those things. And wealth, the scriptures say, have a tendency to be one of those possible deal breakers. I think we have a deficiency in our modern Christianity in our current Christian culture where I think that if we had been there and we had caught this man as he was walking away from Jesus sad, I think we might have said something to him like our modern Christianity. I think we might have said something to him like, whoa, 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 dude. You don't need to go away sad. You can have what you want and Jesus. Just add Jesus to the gig. You can still have that illicit relationship. You can still have that idolatrous pursuit. You can still harbor that unforgiveness and hold on to that bitterness. You can still keep those secret places. Just add Jesus. That's what we do. And I think the text is telling us that's not what we do. There are some hard lines. After all, that was Satan's lie in the garden, right? Satan's lie in the garden to Eve was, listen, what God really wants to do is take stuff away from you. God's a taker. That's why he said to you, don't eat from the fruit of that tree. That was a lie of Satan in the garden. Was it God was some sort of cosmic killjoy? The trap that we often fall into is we think that God stands in the way of our treasure. That was a lie that he told Eve. That was the problem that this man experienced. He saw Jesus as somehow standing in the way of his treasure, that God is some sort of cosmic killjoy that takes. Conversely, on other days, I think we sometimes see God as a way to our treasure, as if he were a genie in a bottle. It's not that Jesus is in the way of our treasure, nor is he a way to get treasure. Jesus himself is the treasure that is offered in the text. Go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor. You'll be rich in heaven. Come and follow me. He wasn't inviting the man to something worse. He was inviting the man to something better. The lie is that it'll be something worse. The truth of the text is that Jesus following him is always better. Paul got that. We remember this text. We read it all the time about every third sermon or so. The Apostle Paul says, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider them lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, and I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Man, with the help of the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, at some point the Apostle Paul got what this young Rich, ruler, failed to get. that Nothing that we could ever sacrifice in following Jesus is actually any kind of sacrifice. <laughs> because what we get in following Jesus is far better than anything we could ever lose when we're following Jesus. But I, I think, honestly, as people, I'll, I'll speak for myself, I think we're, we're slow to believe that Sometimes. I think that that's evidenced by Peter's response. Peter is in the Gospels such a parable for us so often. You want to look how we would actually respond when we didn't have on our cute little Christian Sunday morning faces? Look at what Peter does. What does Peter say in verse 27? Well, we've left everything to follow you. And then he says, he literally actually says this. What's in it for us? I cannot believe he said that. He missed the whole holiness of the moment. He missed the whole first commandment, the invitation, the exchange, the greater treasure, like he should have heard my sermon. He was missing the whole thing. He said, well, we left everything. What's in it for us? We laugh because that's so, we can relate to that. And Jesus says to them, verse 28, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, right? That's when Jesus comes back and restores all things, rights every wrong. Then he says to the 12 disciples, You have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging or leading the 12 tribes of Israel. They'll have this special place in the economy of God when all things are made new. And then he includes us in verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Anyone who has left anything for my sake will get much more in the end, he says. He doesn't mean literally because you can't literally have a, val- a hundred moms and a hundred dads. Figurative, metaphorical language is a way of Jesus saying, Listen, there's nothing, there is nothing you can give up in this lifetime in following me for my sake that will not be far outshadowed by what you gain ultimately in your relationship with me. We're slow to believe that. So we do exactly what Jesus said not to do. We battle for first place in this world. And he said, that the people that seem like they're winning right now, when everything's renewed, it's going to be a different picture. And those who seem like they're losing right now, it's going to look like they're winning. There's just this reversal of economy, of value. We're slow to believe it. And Peter would just have to wait and see it because you know what? That would not be Peter's immediate experience. Man, Peter would have some tough times. And we're told that ultimately Peter would be crucified on a cross upside down for preaching Jesus. Peter would just have to, like, wait and see. Peter would have to do what we all have to do, take God's word for it. Jesus also said, in this world you will have trouble. Take God's word for it. Peter would. Peter experienced that. But he'd have to take God's word for it. Jesus was saying, Peter, trust me. In the end following me in any spaces or places in which I call you to obey or anything in my love that for your good I ask you to surrender and let go or exchange, it will only be better for you and work for My glory, Jesus says, in the end, Peter, you gotta trust me on this. The invitation that he gave to Peter and to us there was to wait and see. We hate to wait wait and see but that's not the only t- invitation in scripture we also have the invitation to taste and to see there are some things we have to wait for as it pertains to our life with God and there are some things that we are meant to taste now remember Psalm 34 8 taste and see that the Lord is good all oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. The man went away sad because he refused to take refuge in Jesus. But the invitation was for him to taste and see. The Christian life is not only wait and see, it is also taste and see. And the man would fail to taste because he refused to follow. And those are the same spaces where we fail to taste is when we refuse to follow Jesus. And the minutia, in the certain areas of our lives, be it our finances or forgiveness or sexuality or entertainment or whatever it is. When we refuse to follow Jesus in a certain area, then we fail to taste his goodness in that area. To be able to say with the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me into green pastures and beside still waters. To say with the psalmist, Your love, O oh Lord, is better than life. To experience that even in those moments where we have to exchange some sort of treasure, Jesus is better. And we have the benefit of the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the story. If only, if only the rich young man. Had known that Jesus had already forsaken his own riches for this man. It might have changed his perspective. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 8? You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. If only the man had known that Jesus had already become poor for his sake, the man might have been willing to become poor for Christ's sake. And we read in Philippians chapter 2 about Jesus' becoming poor for our sake. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross the pre-existent, eternal, second member of the Trinity, Jesus became human flesh and was nailed in his flesh naked to a cross. For our sake, there is no greater expression of an abandonment of riches, a willingness to become poor for the sake of other than what God has done for us in Christ. And if only the man had known these things, as we know these things, he might have heard reverberating in his ears the declaration of Romans 8 where it says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? In the life to come, a hundredfold blessings. Jesus isn't in the way of your treasure. He's not a way or a means to get treasure. Jesus is meant to be our treasure. And, you know, you got to take his word for it, wait and see, and you got to act on his word for it, taste and see. The disciples misunderstood so much. That's why they said when they saw what happened between Jesus and the man in verse 25, they said, If that's true, then who can be saved? You know, because they just misunderstood what was happening in the world. Their background, what they believed was that if someone is wealthy in this lifetime, it is a sign of the favor and the blessing of God. So when they saw a wealthy guy walk away and Jesus said, yeah, he won't make it to the kingdom of God, that kind of blew their paradigm away. They misunderstood the true nature of things as a man did. The man misunderstood so much. He thought that something he could do or achieve would satisfy him. But what Jesus said in verse 26 is, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This eternal life thing, this ultimate satisfaction that the man was looking for, Jesus says explicitly to his disciples, this is not a human possibility. This is not something that can be done. This is not something about your goodness. This isn't something that can be achieved. This is about what God has done. This is about God's goodness and what he has done for you through his son. Paul, in his very Pauline way, puts some unique grammar around that in Romans 3 and says, obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. Remember, I've told you guys many times the law only always ever shows us to be bad. That's what, that's what Jesus was doing for this guy, showing him his badness as he unfolded the law to him. Verse 20, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God, justified is a theological word. We are justified with God or to God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty for our sins, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. With us, it's impossible to earn or to gain eternal life and to find ultimate satisfaction. But with God... This is what he does. And this is what he does through Jesus and through Jesus alone. Only Jesus saves, only Jesus satisfies. And sometimes wealth blinds us to our need for a savior because we can placate those deep needs with so many things. Retail therapy, everything else. And sometimes it helps us avoid the true sense of dissatisfaction in us that can only be met by God. So I think we have to be asking ourselves in light of the text, like, what is Jesus in his love trying to confront and expose in our lives? Things that maybe we've exalted to too high of a place, be it a relationship or a standing or possessions or income or family, whatever it is, Just ask the Holy Spirit today as we begin to worship in just a minute. Like, is there anything in my life, Jesus, that I'm I'm valuing too much that's blinding me to my deeper and truer needs and the deeper and truer satisfaction that's found in you? Is there anything that I'm placating myself with that would keep me from tasting and seeing today that you're good? And if it's something hard, if Jesus says something hard to you, like he said to the man, and take him at his word and wait and see that he always provides something better in himself and in his love. And I've been asking myself the question too the last few days I've been preparing the sermon is, is what, what makes me wander? That's why I'm tired wandering about treasures. What makes me wander? Man, it, it often has to do with my affluence, my wealth, my position, my abilities my possessions, my ability to get things and the way that that dulls my heart to my deep need for God. And there's just some time and an opportunity to kind of put things that make us wander and things that blind us in check. What makes it hard for me to live out kingdom ideals? Just to put those things in check today. And if Jesus is calling you to follow him in some areas which might look like forsaking some stuff, repenting of some stuff, giving up some stuff, And take him at his word. He is true treasure. And in obeying him is true freedom. We think that obedience means hemming us in, but freedom is actually obedience. Can you imagine the freedom that may have come to this man's life if he had let those things go and followed Christ? Jesus was telling him, you're in bondage and he couldn't see it. John, who was there this day, would later on write and say, the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome has to do with the love of God. Help us, Lord, to take you at your word. Help us, God, to see the truth that Jesus, you are the greatest treasure who has come to us because of the love of God. Help us, Lord, please, God, where we desire other things too much. Expose for us, Lord, our places of False satisfaction. Ungodly self-sufficiency. Help us, Holy Spirit, to lean into the person and the love of Jesus. Show us, Holy Spirit, things and places that would mean repentance for us. Help us to see and experience it and rejoice in the love of God that's evident in those things. Please, Lord, help us with these things. In Jesus' name.